mysterious little rhino. Chakaka! Alright, welcome to the Andrew Scott Show. Today I had the pleasure of speaking with Jessica Gary Redman, or rather Dr. Jessica Gary Redman. Uh, she's a PhD, has a PhD from Syracuse University, where she's also a professor. Uh, she teaches sports nutrition and does research there as well. She's also a registered dietitian, a certified yoga instructor, certified strength and conditioning coach. She also has a private practice where she does nutrition nutrition coaching with athletes. Wow, I can't speak today. <laughs> uh, at MajorLeagueWellness.com. And she does a lot of stuff. And we also talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about supplements. We talked about gut health. We talked about how your genetics play into what diet might be best for you. And we talked about really how to just take a reasonable approach to making healthy changes in one's diet uh, in this world of extremes and fad diets that we live in. Uh, it was a really good conversation. I quite enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Here we go. We are now live. Cool. Um, forewarning, right? <laughs> um, and if you can like pull this up to your... Okay. It's like... I think like a fist away they say okay but uh, cool. you can move it around wherever you want um but yeah it's uh it's definitely smaller than i, w- I would think because i grew up in vestal in the binghamton mm-hmm. area mm-hmm. and then went to oswego now i'm in syracuse and it's right. like wow this place is popping yeah <laughs> meanwhile my girlfriend she uh she went to west hill high school okay are you, are you from around the area i'm not but i know the area pretty okay well. So all of her friends, whenever I meet them, it's like, oh, nothing to do, nothing to do. It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> like, right. It's a pretty cool place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so thanks so much for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm really glad to have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, very interested in nutrition and everything. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I'm just uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, so good. do you want to give me, uh, or everyone who mm-hmm. is or isn't listening to this podcast, <laughs> a little background on yourself? Yeah. I am a registered dietitian, so I have kind of undergrad degree in nutrition, and then I decided that I was really interested in sports nutrition, and that stemmed from kind of an interest as just personal, being an athlete myself, and um, just wanting to work with athletes, and so that prompted me to go back to school and get some degrees in exercise science, and so my grad degrees are in exercise science and exercise physiology, but I've always still like worked in nutrition along the way, so... Um, the first time I moved to Central New York was because I worked at the Food Bank of Central New York doing okay. nutrition education, which was not sports nutrition related at all, but that was still an interest of mine, just sort of this idea of promoting community nutrition and just getting kids excited about eating healthy. And then when I was in grad school, I worked at a cancer institute as an outpatient dietitian, oh. which was like a super heavy part-time I job. Bet. Yeah, so I, I didn't last too long doing that. Um, and then I got into teaching and I started adjunct teaching when I was in grad school and I really loved doing that. So that kind of prompted me to want to get my PhD and continue on that path. But I've kind of kept up a very small private practice throughout kind of my entire career and that I get to sort of form whatever I want it to be because I just sort of pick and choose who my clients are. Yeah. So I tend to do a lot of sports nutrition counseling for 
people locally who are just sort of training for a marathon or a triathlon. Sometimes I'll get high school or college athletes who their parents may contact me or they may (laughs) contact me. Um, So it's kind of a nice way to still keep in touch with that piece of what I'm interested in. Yeah. I also sometimes do talks to like local teams or groups that are training. I do some work with the YMCA. They have a tri group and a marathon training group. So kind of keep my toes in the water in the profession that way. But now I'm a professor at SU. And so I teach a sports nutrition class every semester and I do research in sports nutrition. I also have other research interests, but that's been the one that's been kind of most consistent. So right now we're doing a research project um, looking at female athletes and to see if any female athletes that are vegetarian have different kind of different markers than female athletes who are not vegetarian. So we're measuring stuff like body composition and resting metabolic rate and doing some blood measures. Yeah. Yeah. So it feels like it's kind of come full circle, but I am one of those people that I think just, I have a lot of wide ranging interests. So it's hard sometimes to like nail me down into one particular area. Right now, most of my interest is centered around sports nutrition, but I still have other projects and ideas that are kind of in other directions of nutrition. Yeah, because I was on your site, Major League Wellness, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, uh, oh, I forgot to turn this fan on. Um, otherwise, we're going to overheat, and that's not going to be good. <laughs> um, yeah, I was on your site, and I saw that you're certified strength and conditioning. Yep. Uh, do triathlons, yoga mm-hmm. certified, 200-hour. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, not that I know too much about all of that, <laughs> but, like, That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, when I first went back to grad school, my hope was that I would become a sports dietitian for a college, pro team, whatever it would be. And at that time, there really weren't that many job opportunities in the field. But what I could see was that a lot of that type of work had been historically done by strength coaches. And so I thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And I had the, (laughs) the criteria to go ahead and take the CSCS exam. And so I did. I will tell you that like I've never actually been a strength coach and so I know generally like the moves that they test for on the exam and I do some of them in my own personal workouts but I'm not like coaching people in that at all okay um I yeah that's that's not necessarily I mean I'm interested in that but that's not like my thing yeah I just sort of did that to kind of in some ways level the playing field a little bit to be like look I have this credential like I kind of know what you know as far as the physiology is concerned I would add the nutrition that that credential there's a little bit of nutrition that's required for people to know but it's pretty basic compared to what like a true sports dietitian would want to be able to know right and what they could offer so um yeah at this point there are a lot of sports dietitians out there now like that field has really exploded and most of those people don't have that credential. There's actually like a separate credential for people that are sort of specialists in sports dietetics, which really? I don't have at this point. It's like one of those things that I was like, I just can't keep collecting like <laughs> things after my name. Um, <laughs> Whenever I saw you online, <laughs> yeah. like every time I see your name, there's like four X, five yeah, acronyms like after it. It's funny. <laughs> I have to sometimes like pick and choose what I put after my name. But, um, you know, that is important because I think it legitimizes myself into like the exercise world. Because yeah. for me, I was a dietitian first. That was like my first career identity. But my grad degrees are in exercise science. And so having that other credential sort of helped just again, like legitimize me in the exercise field. 
And so then it kind of merges together. But the, the yoga stuff, I would say, came about just out of personal interest. Like, yeah. I was doing yoga, and I thought, geez, like, I could teach this. And I just on a volunteer basis had like coached sports in the past and I was like it's sort of an extension of coaching to be able to guide people through Um, so I gradually worked towards that training and there's a lot of different types of yoga certifications these days like that has also really exploded so you can do these sort of random trainings here and there and be a yoga teacher after like a day of training I did Hmm. one where it's it's a very more intense training, but I kind of did it over a period of probably like four years. So I got to kind of pick and choose when I did the trainings, which gave me a lot of flexibility, yeah. which was nice. I know around around Syracuse, there are a couple of studios that do 200-hour trainings, and they're pretty intense. They're like several weekends a month for like six months. I bet. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of people out there now that have that certification. But I think a lot of it is just experience. Like you get to be a better yoga teacher the more you get to teach, yeah. regardless of how much extensive training you had going into it. Right. Matter but of... that's sort of my fun outlet at this point. I sort of, <laughs> I teach that. And then um, I also teach a weight training class through this company called Les Mills. They're okay. out of New Zealand and they do these really cool, like really? pre-choreographed fitness classes. So I had been like a long time ago, I got certified to teach their version of spinning. It's called RPM. And I kind of fell away from doing that for a couple of reasons, but I got into their strength training class, which is called Body Pump, and I love that. So I teach that and yoga. Those are my two things. That Where do you are teach? Kind of my side jobs. I teach at the uh, the East Y in Fayetteville. Okay. I do both of those back to back on Friday nights, and then I teach yoga here and there at other Y branches too. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. And in between, like right now, I'm in between semesters, so it gives me more flexibility to do some of that stuff that I don't always get to consistently do during the semester. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Well, because I'm sure teaching takes up a lot of your time. Well, so technically, like the life of a professor is supposed to be about 40% of your time teaching, 40% of your time research, and 20% of your time doing like service and advising and other stuff. Okay. Hmm. So... I will say, because I started out as an adjunct instructor, I think I always have maybe put too much time into my teaching. Mm. And now that I have research <laughs> projects going, I've had to like kind of mind shift to focus more time on research than on teaching. Right. Because I love teaching. And it's one of those things where you can spend as much time as you want to, but sometimes you don't need to be doing that. <laughs> so Burnout is real. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just like you're never going to have this sort of perfect class so you can prep for 10 hours or for two hours and it's just it's going to happen because it's scheduled to happen that's how i feel about this right now yeah so you just have to <laughs> i have to let go of that <laughs> yeah just let it go right yeah just let it flow yeah exactly. um that's cool so you're doing a lot of more a lot more research now mm-hmm. um yep. what do you what's what are your research interests i have i think all of my research interests are kind of focused around this issue of like women's health and female athletes and just how women engage in exercise and what that means for their body. Right. So the two projects that I have going on is the first one is the female athlete project, which I talked about before. So we're actively recruiting college athletes from Syracuse and then they're coming into our lab and we're doing just a kind of battery of tests. We're doing a lot of different body comp measures and then resting metabolic rate, which mm-hmm. tells us like how much energy their body uses at rest. Right. And then we're doing some blood sampling and hair sampling to measure different um, 
markers of inflammation. Okay. Because typically if you're eating a vegetarian diet and you're doing it well, that historically has been sort of anti-inflammatory, which is good. And when you're exercising at a really high intensity, you generally are increasing inflammation in your body. That's just like an innate response to mm-hmm. high intensity exercise, which is bad in the short term, but the other benefits of exercise sort of counteract that in the long term. But what we're curious to see is that if these athletes are eating a good vegetarian diet that theoretically has higher anti-inflammatory markers, does that somehow offset those pro-inflammatory responses to exercise? So kind of comparing how that would look in the athletes who are or aren't vegetarian. Hmm. So that's kind of our working hypothesis with that particular study. Interesting. Yeah. The thing that we're running into is that there's not that many vegetarian athletes I out bet. there. I yeah. bet. So we're going to have to get a little creative in terms of how we um, look at the data. I think one of the things that we're really interested in is omega-3. And we're working oh, with a company okay. that does this really cool fatty acid profile from just a finger prick blood sample. Huh. And so it can tell you your omega-3 levels, your omega-6 levels, and like all other fatty acids in the blood. So I think we're going to focus more on that because omega-3s are also thought to be anti-inflammatory. And, thought to be? Not mm-hmm. not are? Um, I would say that's, that's debatable. Debate. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where every time a study comes out to show that it is anti-inflammatory, yeah. I feel like there's another study that shows no effect. Yeah. So. A lot of conflicting data out there. To me, I think when you when you boil it all down there's no harm in omega-3s like they're probably anti-inflammatory or they might not have an effect but they're not harmful okay so as far as like promoting let's say fish oil supplements i don't have a problem doing that because i think it's probably going to benefit you and if not it's not going to hurt you to take those do you take fish oil i do Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. I don't well, That's a telltale, right? Yeah, right. Do you take it right, yourself? <laughs> exactly. And I'm not, um, with any supplement that I recommend or take, like I don't necessarily religiously take them every day because okay. I just think if you're eating a good diet, supplements are like insurance. So you don't necessarily have to do it every day as sort of a staple part of your day. It's yeah. meant to supplement what you're doing diet-wise. So even like a general multivitamin I don't take every day. Like okay. I will, but not every day. Because if I'm eating a good diet, most of those things I can keep a store of in my body. So I don't need to have this constant supply from the supplement. Yeah. So I feel that way about just general supplements. I think in some cases, there are reasons why you'd want to take it pretty consistently. Um, but for someone who's just in a general state of good health, trying to optimize their health, hmm. It, it doesn't have to be every day. Right. You're not yeah. going to gain leaps and bounds by taking that. Probably not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when it comes to like in the sport nutrition world, there are definitely some things that we call ergogenic aids that are going to help maximize your exercise performance. And so there are some more specific like protocols around when you should take it or how frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's just something to sort of optimize your overall health profile, Again, the research isn't there to say that, like, you've got to take it every single day to see yeah, those benefits. Yeah. So I didn't mean to no, it's okay. get off the rails from the it's study. Um, have you, have there been any uh, preliminary, preliminary, preliminary findings so far as far as uh, vegetarian versus not? Cause oh, in our as, study? As all the, I got to imagine, like, all these athletes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
college level athletes they're in the gym too mm-hmm. and when you're in the gym what is what is the the mantra like you need to eat protein to right. build your muscles or right. whatever um so i gotta imagine that a lot of people uh i, I got i don't know i just it makes more sense to me that athletes wouldn't be vegetarian i guess like have you have you found anything so yeah. far well so or is that completely off <laughs> we haven't found any anything preliminarily yet but what i will say is that they're college students. So what I am finding just anecdotally when they do some of the diet recall and diet analysis stuff is that they're not eating very consistently. So what we're having them do is a couple of diet recalls where they tell us what they ate the day before. And I've had a number of situations so far where they report eating very little or very unhealthy things. And they, (laughs) you know, have that disclaimer like, oh, well, that was an atypical day. That's not normally what I do. And I'm like, well, okay, but if that's what you're reporting, then how atypical is it really? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's a problem, regardless of whether they're vegetarian or not, just that they're college students. And you're right, they are working really hard when they're exercising. But I don't know that that's always being matched up with eating really well. And I think my experience has been, again, sort of anecdotally, that a lot of college athletes have this mindset that they're young and healthy and kind of invincible, and so it doesn't really matter <laughs> what they eat. And the the trend of having sports dietitians around, I think, is helping to get athletes to recognize that there is this connection between how they perform and what they're eating. I don't know that that's made an appearance yet at Syracuse. Syracuse doesn't have a sports dietitian, and so I think they're – still waiting for that sort of mindset to trickle across like the entire sports programs. I think some teams get that more than others. Right. But I do think that in general, college athletes have a hard time with that because they're kind of left to their own devices to figure out what to eat. Yeah. And they may not have great cooking skills because they're college students and most college students are figuring that out for the first time anyway. Um, and they're strapped for time. Yeah. So I don't blame them for having these days where they're not eating as well as they should be. But that's probably been the most sort of consistent observation so far. Right. Oh, and then you throw in there like Friday and Saturday nights as a college student too. And it's like Thursdays and right. whatever other days. But like, right. yeah, I can sure, I'm sure things go a little haywire mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. probably aren't as atypical as people tell themselves they are. Yeah, and that's not unique <laughs> to college athletes, no, right? Like no, no. I think I find that when I work with people one on one, that tends to come out too that oh, yeah. like, oh, I don't eat out that much. And then when we talk about the last week, it's like, oh, well, I went to Panera and then I went here and I went to Tully's because <laughs> there was a game on and it's like, okay, well, that tells me that this going out is more typical than you might think in your mind. Yeah, than yeah. you might want to admit. <laughs> right, right. It's it's not that we're being dishonest with ourselves, we're not just being real transparent with ourselves yeah. either we yeah. uh there's a little bias going on right, right. there right exactly <laughs> uh, what is your diet like i would say i'm more of like a flexitarian at this point so i do eat meat but i don't make that the staple of every meal okay um i tend to eat a lot of vegetarian meals but i also eat meat and i tend to eat meat more when I'm in charge of like where that's coming from. So when I am going out to eat, that's usually a time where I will make more vegetarian choices. And then if I'm eating meat, it's usually, you know, meat that I purchase that I'm cooking myself at home. You know where you got it. Yeah. And so it's a combination of like knowing where I got it and just food safety being like always worried about that. And just 
yeah, being in control of how it's being prepared and, and all of that good stuff. That makes sense. Because I mentioned before we sat down uh, that I was vegan for six months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, before I did that, I was at the gym in Oswego working and I was the strongest I'd ever been mm-hmm. and then went vegan and it was like a sharp decline, which, you know, I, I know there's a lot of different theories out there and people are very uh, tribal about their diets and mm-hmm. whatever. Um I wanted to try it. I, I thought right. it was interesting. And the reason I did it really was for environmental reasons. But mm-hmm. um, now that I'm not vegan anymore, one thing I pay a lot of attention to is when I do eat meat, where I'm getting it from. Right. Like I, I only really grass fed meat. Like mm-hmm. uh, I, I go to the regional market mm-hmm. every Saturday with my girlfriend and mm-hmm. we go to uh, Finger Lakes Farms. They get meat from a lot of local farmers right. in the CNY area. And just very conscious of that right. because, I don't know, beyond uh, like all the diet stuff, like there's a lot of environmental exactly. factors there mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. Um, which I'm, which is the reason I went vegan in the first place. Right. But um, I don't know. I just yeah. try to strike and a I think balance. about that too. I, over the course of my life, have definitely experimented with mostly being vegetarian, some points being vegan, but that never lasted very long. <laughs> and so I feel like. For me, the turning point was actually when I was pregnant for the first time, just realizing, okay, I got to make sure I consistently have protein during my pregnancy. And the easiest way to do that was to just fold, you know, meat back in here and there. And I never have ever really enjoyed red meat. So for me, it was just more like chicken. And I've always been very flexible about fish. So now, Mm. especially like I love fish, but it's mostly fish and chicken with the occasional like ground turkey if anything mixed in i don't really i still don't do a lot of red meat okay turkey bacon it's like the opposite of yeah. me i could eat red meat like <laughs> breakfast lunch and dinner <laughs> yeah i just i don't know it's never appealed to me um and you know again when i think about the health reasons i look at stuff like the world cancer research fund does this report every couple of years about sort of the the accumulated research on diet and cancer risk and there is some there's a pattern there about Mostly processed red meats, but generally, yeah. like, there's just a, a, a relationship. Like, the more red meat you eat, generally, the higher the risk is for cancer across the, the world. You know, obviously, right. there's a lot of other factors that go into that. Um, but we see, for example, like, when men from Japan come to the U.S. and start adopting this more Western diet where they eat more red meat, more processed meat than they were they do have higher rates of cancer compared to their peers back in Japan. So there's some of that stuff that, like keeps me just in the chicken boat and the yeah, fish boat. Yeah. Um, and then I think, too, the environmental factors around just how these big farms are, like what's yeah. happening and, well, and how far removed, you know, like the food chain is going from producing plants that these animals are eating and then just how all of that impacts the the environment. Yeah. And it's a big deal. It is. Um, it's not good mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. i said it's one of the reasons that when i eat meat now it's like i know where i got it right just because exactly which makes a big difference shot a deer over the picture right there mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah this year um just cause I, I know where it came from yeah like and i mean i don't know uh if that deer is eating the best things i mm-hmm. i don't know exactly i don't eat venison like all the time right. but i do well they're free range so yeah i was gonna say that's they're pretty free range <laughs> they're free range as it gets really we have a herd of deer that's that true. come through our yard all the time and they're yeah they're just foraging yeah it's funny you mentioned uh 
the Japanese men that come over mm-hmm. and have high risk mm-hmm. rates of cancer. Um, one of the studies, and I don't know the details of it, that I hear about a lot is like, okay, two groups of people, one eats red meat, one eat, one doesn't, mm-hmm. and the group of red meat is higher. Right. But it doesn't really, like, are you eating red meat from a deer or are you eating red meat from McDonald's? Because, like, with, with two right. buns and a side of fries. Because, right. like, one of the, isn't, um, as far as the whole cholesterol and, and fat brigade goes, um, like, it isn't uh, the presence of sugar, like, the ter- uh, factor in that as well? Like, I mean, like I said, I don't know the details, yeah. but I know there's a lot of controversy over all that. Oh, yeah. And I'm just curious as to what your take is on yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, I think we we saw this in the most recent dietary guidelines that came out. They actually got rid of the um, sort of diet restrictions that they had put in place around cholesterol. Okay. Because we now recognize that when people have high cholesterol, it's often driven a lot more by just their genetic tendencies towards producing it internally. Mm. And that when we eat diet sources of cholesterol, that may or may not really contribute to you having high levels of cholesterol in your bloodstream. So I know that the first strategy when someone has high cholesterol is generally to cut as much cholesterol out of their diet as they can, which could certainly help. But for a lot of people, they have high cholesterol because their genetic tendency is to just make a lot. And so medication that you give for high cholesterol generally targets that internal production. And that's why medication is often more successful at lowering cholesterol levels than just reducing it in your diet can be. Hmm. But it really depends on the person. There's no one universal strategy for lowering cholesterol that's going to work for everybody. And then the saturated fat piece, I think, has also... There's been a little bit of like a mind shift around that recently, too, because... I know Weight Watchers took away the... Like, eggs are zero points now, I heard. um, There has been, I think, some research recently to kind of suggest that eating high saturated fat is not necessarily as problematic as we used to think in terms of like heart disease risk. I think now the issue is definitely more about trans fat, which is coming from a lot of these processed foods. Yeah. And that's something that doesn't really occur naturally for the most part. And we just don't need, I mean, saturated fat has a role because it is naturally found in certain foods, but trans fat, the the majority of trans fat that we're eating is coming from these like processed foods that, we just don't need to have in our diet whatsoever. And they're often packaged with sugar. Yeah. So then it becomes really hard to separate out like, well, what's driving these problems? Is it the sugar or the trans fat in these like little Debbie snack cakes? Like what's the problem? The problem is the snack cakes. Like it's hard to know which ingredient or which nutrient in there is really problematic. But sugar is definitely an issue on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when you look at research and we just see these increasing rates of diabetes, the type two diabetes that are happening kind of simultaneous to increased rates of obesity, it becomes really hard to argue against sugar being part of the problem. Right. And so I think that's where we've like, just over time, I think there's always trends like fat's bad and then sugar's bad and then fat's bad (laughs) and then carbs are bad and then fat's bad. Like we just always cycle back and forth, but it's like, There's not going to be one thing that's the problem for everybody. But if you look at how the food supply has changed, 
sugar has definitely been one of the things that has now shown up in a lot of foods that didn't historically have sugar added. Yeah, right. And that like, definitely could be a problem. Like, it just one thing that comes to mind is like whole milk versus like you know fat-free milk. Mm-hmm. It's like take out all the fat, add in the sugar, so it still tastes good. Like. Yeah, I mean, they're not necessarily, when they go from whole to fat-free, they're not necessarily adding sugar, but it's just different. Like, the satiety level isn't great. I'm sorry, I forgot to plug this in. It's okay. But I do think there's benefits to having fat in your milk, right? Like, yeah. it'll help with the absorption of the fat-soluble vitamins that are in the milk. So you just need that fat for certain reasons. Um, and... Cutting out, going from whole milk to skim milk, yes, it's going to save you on calories, but that that calorie savings may not really be the biggest issue in in the person's overall diet. Right. So I think that that's like an easy fix that people can kind of focus on. Like, oh, I'm going to try to lose weight and cut calories. I'll switch to skim milk. Well, that's great, but that's not going to save you a ton of calories. You know, you got to think about other places where there's these big calorie savings potential. And that comes back to like eating out processed foods, the places where you don't even realize how many calories you're consuming at one time. Right. Well, because I don't know, I feel like if you because I mean, I got to think that whole milk and fat free milk uh, probably affect your satiety in a different way, too. Mm -hmm. And you might end up eating more because you had the fat free milk like later on in the day without even realizing it. Yeah, I it's just, very possible. To your point, there's just a lot of factors. Right. There's a lot of factors. Yeah. Um, what, uh, I'm curious, mm-hmm. as a nutritionist, PhD now, right? Mm-hmm. Congrats on that. Thank you. I, I looked at your website and <laughs> I, it said uh, completing PhD, but then I saw somewhere else that there was PhD was yes. another acronym you yep. had. So yes. <laughs> congratulations yes. on you. that. Thank um, as a nutritionist, PhD, mm-hmm. and a mother, like, mm-hmm. what is your kid's diet like? Like, what, what approach do you take with your yeah, kids? Yeah, that's probably been one of the most humbling experiences. <laughs> I bet. trying to feed kids that are picky. Um, oh, and I picky. I mean, milk is a staple, <laughs> for sure. And so I have um, a six-year-old and a two-year-old. The six-year-old drinks 2% milk. The two-year-old drinks whole milk. So, yeah, milk's still a staple in both of their <laughs> diets. Um, and, you know, when, when school lunch became a thing... You know, chocolate milk has entered the picture. So now we have the older one does chocolate milk, which is usually one or two percent. Okay. Um, and then as far as food goes, it's a lot of like pretty standard kid food. I try really hard to offer things that I think are healthier, and yeah. it just it's hit or miss what lands and what doesn't. <laughs> so I find creative ways to get them to eat healthier, but it's it's still a struggle. You know, some of the the staple things that always work are, you know, peanut butter and jelly. Like, that's a staple. Right. My older son is taken to, like, tomato soup. He loves tomato soup. So nice. I'm like, okay, cool. We can have that. If there's grilled cheese added to that, perfect. That Ooh. makes it a more balanced meal. Um, but he also loves salad. I'm like, okay, that's good. That's a yeah, veggie. Yeah. That's real good. Um, we do a lot of, like, frozen vegetables. So, again, not, like, fresh and perfect, but still... It works. That's that. okay. That wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> so one of the things that I generally do as a staple meal is like a, it's not really mac and cheese. I call it that to them. But uh, I get the sort of higher protein elbow macaroni. Nice. And then add some frozen peas in there. And then 
again, this is the kid-friendly version. Just take some shredded cheese, put it over the top, and my older son loves it with ketchup, which to me is disgusting. Oh. But I'm like, you know what? If you're going to oh. eat the high-protein macaroni with the peas and some cheese, like, fine. You, you earn some ketchup. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. So those are like not the meal that I would plan for myself, but yeah. it works for kids. We have that with salad and... It, it works. One of the other ones that I was sort of surprised that they like. Um, so my grandmother was Puerto Rican and she used to make this for me and I started making it for my kids. It's rice with gondules, which are like pigeon peas. Huh. And so it's a pretty simple. It's like yellow rice, pigeon peas, pepper, onion, garlic. I add turkey bacon, but you can add other meat to right. it, too. And that always is a hit. It's just so funny, like what works and what doesn't. Sounds pretty so good. that's a pretty standard meal, too. Um, and then just like chili, I do like a ground turkey bean chili. Yeah. They love that with cornbread. Um, Ooh, cornbread. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we do like Taco Tuesdays. Yeah, pretty standard things. Cool. We eat pizza. I try to also offset that with veggies of some sort. Do you so, homemade pizza? Um, or do you order sometimes. Out? Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, we don't usually order out. I usually just do like frozen, like thin oh, crust okay. kind yeah, of yeah. pizzas. Um. I like making non-bread pizza myself. That mm, is like my go-to delicious. lunch if I'm at home. But they prefer just the standard pizza. Oh, I really? haven't broken them into the non-bread pizza uh, yet. <laughs> non is delicious. And then we love like breakfast um, on the weekends. I use Kodiak cakes. It's like a high-protein pancake mix. And so we always do okay. pancakes on the weekends. But again, they're like slightly higher protein. So yeah. it works. You got to, you know, cut corners where you can. Right. Right? Yeah. But they're pretty good about eating fruit like my kids love fruit. And then the thing that I've found works the best for veggies, aside from the frozen veggies or the salad, are these carrot coins. They're like carrots that are sliced kind of not at all like a carrot stick. They're kind of the other way. And so they're sort of serrated looking. Interesting. And they're just nice like bite size. They look kind of like chips. And so that has been yeah. a great option either as a snack or just to have with a meal. Um, I like baking them or roasting them and putting some of that Trader Joe's everything but the bagel seasoning oh, on them. Yeah, they're really good like that. But they just prefer to eat them raw and kind of have that crunch. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you cover a lot of bases. Ugh, it's hard. There's no one universal winner when it comes to making food that they're both going to eat. Right. And then when I try to make something that I like, usually they're not going to eat it. Yeah. So it's a... It's a <laughs> Yeah, we usually end up going with what I know they'll eat. Right. <laughs> so my it's diet just easier tends that way, to take I'm a sure. hit sometimes, but that's okay. <laughs> that's just easier that way, I bet. Yeah. I don't have kids, but I can only imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, you know, they're they're pretty good, but they're also pretty typical in terms of being picky. So yeah. The, oh, the ketchup the on the mac and cheese, though. That's... Apparently, that's not all oh. that odd when I've talked to other people about really? their kids' love of ketchup. ketchup I mean, I like just appears ketchup, on a lot but... of things. With mac and cheese? Like, ketchup and cheese just itself sounds yeah. nasty. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't do it. Ugh. Do your kids have any, like, allergies? Or do you have any allergies to no. food? No. And that's been, like, a blessing because I have a lot of friends who've dealt with that and it becomes super restrictive. But yeah. we've never had any issues. My younger son seemed to have a little bit of a reaction to stuff when he was pretty young and then that went away. Okay. So I definitely am a firm believer in sort of early exposure to allergens and even there's research to also suggest that when you're pregnant you want to get exposure to those allergens and that that's protective too like the the historical thinking was that when you were pregnant you should avoid stuff like peanuts 
Right. But now we're realizing that that actually had the opposite effect, that that was probably increasing people's rates. I think I read about a study recently that was uh, the same kind of thing with pregnant women having milk versus no milk. Mm -hmm. Or or maybe it was just dairy. Yep. But uh, way more of the kids uh, when they were born had allergies to dairy if the mother didn't have any when she was pregnant. And so that's one of my other research interests is sort of this idea like my dissertation was on this concept of fetal programming which is kind of what mom does or doesn't do in terms of diet exercise smoking drinking like all of those things they program the baby to either express or not express different genes and that kind of drives their risk for disease throughout the rest of their life it drives risk for things like food allergies um it's really interesting and That's so wild. we're still like I still do some research in that area, too. Um, and it, yeah, it's super interesting because it's it's just something that I think for the longest time, a lot of our recommendations about what women should do or not do during pregnancy were rooted in these like centuries old anecdotal recommendations that when you start to dig aren't really based in too much evidence. Yeah, a lot of. Especially uh, around exercise. Like when you think about what we've been telling women about exercise during pregnancy, it was like, well, you can't get your heart rate above 140 beats per minute. Well, why? It's like, I don't know. When you start digging, like that came out of mom nothing. Said so. <laughs> yeah. It just, there's no real rationale for where that came from or why that is. And so now you see women like doing CrossFit while they're pregnant and running marathons while they're pregnant. And I think. To a lot of people, that's shocking. And I don't know that I would advocate for that necessarily, depending on how pregnant you are, but it's possible. There's no real physical reason why you can't do those things. Right. Yeah. Interesting. That's why I could, I would never have guessed. Like, I assumed it was more of a thing that women who were pregnant are encouraged to exercise. Mm -hmm. But as far as doing CrossFit and marathons, that's pretty wild. Yeah. I can't imagine. No, people do it. Interesting. Yeah. Again, not necessarily what I would have, like... It's not what I did when I was pregnant, but still, I think for too long, we've we've maybe been too restrictive about what women shouldn't do during pregnancy. Right. And that has probably hurt in the long run because now we have women that are obese during pregnancy and then their kids are really big and yeah. that all increases risk for everyone developing diabetes later on in their yeah. life. So we probably have done everyone a disservice by not being more educated about what women can do during pregnancy we have so much more information now mm-hmm. i mean just the internet and like here we are talking right, about this right. and like just this couldn't have happened before yeah. and not that you know this is a research study and whatever but right um just information like versus well, you know exactly. grandma didn't exercise when she was pregnant and, and yeah. mom's okay so like we shouldn't right push it either and that's like, so one of my projects that we're getting off the ground now is to is to kind of follow women through their pregnancy and see what kinds of physical activities and food choices they're making and how that impacts them and their baby. It's hard, though, to do research on pregnant women because it's just sort of a what they call a vulnerable population. So yeah, there's not always a lot of research that's done. Not that you can't do research in that population, but it's just hard. Yeah. So I think that's part of the problem when you think about it is that we're not going to create like an intervention where we make – some pregnant women do CrossFit and some walk because yeah. that's just never going to fly. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's wild, though. Um, where Do you take any probiotics or, or where are you at yeah. on that? Yeah, Curious. I do. Um, I think 
you don't have to take a probiotic because yeah. there are so many foods that contain probiotics. And right. so, oh, I'm sorry. I meant, that's what I meant. Like, yeah. do you consume yeah. probiotics, not the, like a supplement or whatever. Right. So I think certainly going back to like the dairy conversation, I think yogurt is a great sort of staple food for people to be eating because it has great calcium. And if you don't really like milk, I know a lot of people sort of outgrow like drinking milk. It's sort of a nice way to still get a serving or two of dairy a day. And it has those great probiotics. There's obviously other foods that contain probiotics too. I think they're maybe less common. And I think about my kids, like they're going to get their probiotics from yogurt. They're not going to go get it from like kimchi or something. They're just not there. (laughs) They're not there. So yeah, for us, that's the biggest source. But I do also take a probiotic. Okay. Um, And I typically, when I talk to clients about it, I typically recommend either um, Culturel or Align. Those tend Hmm. to be the two brands that I think have had more research done on their strains. Because the thing with probiotics is that there's so many different strains and it's hard to know exactly how each strain will benefit people. But there's been some research on specific strains having benefits for specific people. Sorry, I don't know why this is happening. Um, so those are the two brands that I tend to recommend, but it it's a very individual thing. I think some people will find benefits from certain probiotic strains, but you have to sort of experiment to figure out what helps or what doesn't. Yeah. And how, I mean, how would you even know, like if you did better with yogurt or sauerkraut or kimchi or whatever, like is the lay person? Yeah, I think it depends if you are having digestive issues and you start taking if you start eating more of those or start taking a probiotic then you would know if your symptoms start to go away okay i think that would be the confirmation that you've found the right strain or the right combination of strains because a lot of times it's not just one strain it's like multiple strains in a food or if you are taking a supplement and food you're getting exposure to a couple different strains and that's probably the best approach Hmm. um if it's just, you know, you're taking it because you think it's going to be beneficial, but you're not really having any issues, then the confirmation would be that you don't develop any issues yeah. after taking it yeah. and that you feel like you're either getting more regular or you're staying pretty regular. Like those are kind of the, I guess, easy ways to tell if it's working. Okay. That makes sense. Because I don't know, you hear a lot, especially, you know, information, the flow of information mm-hmm. now, both good and bad. Right. Um, so many you know clickbaity headlines and mm-hmm. this and that especially when you have monetary uh in- yeah. influence yeah. obviously um but you just hear you know probiotics are good gut health whatever mm-hmm. um but i don't think it's really at least from what i've read it's not really talked too much about like as far as which probiotics and that kind of thing yeah. and to your point like i don't know the more i've learned about diet and not that I know a ton, mm-hmm. but um, it seems like it's way more individualized than you, you like. You can't just blanket like right. dairy's bad, right. dairy's like sugar's mm-hmm. bad. Like mm-hmm. you said, there's just so much conflicting data out there, and I feel like it really depends on who you are and your right. just. Uh, I can't think of the word um, individual biology. Yeah, like, and that's it's hard because I think we're impatient and we feel like we have all this knowledge so we can put it all together. But we're really at the beginning of what I think is sort of the next level of where we can take this. And that is, you know, we have all this, you know, genetic testing that's now out there, like 23andMe and some of those companies. And there are now in the nutrition field, there are 
some dietitians that are actually starting to take that information and use it to create these personalized nutrition plans based on the person's sort of gene expression. Right. And we there are some genes out there that we know about, like, and I am not a genetic expert, so this is really like stretching my limits, but we know already that there are um, differences in how people express a gene related to folate. And so when women are pregnant, that's something that's often tested for to see whether or not they have that particular gene. And that can determine exactly what form of folate they should be taking during pregnancy, whether it's folate versus folic acid versus something else. Really? And there's, there's other genes like that that we sort of know about. Um, there are some that we know less about, but yeah. we can test for. And so I think that's the next era of where we're going to go with this idea of like personalized nutrition is getting this genetic information and then making recommendations from there. I mean, similar to the cholesterol thing, like yeah. we can actually test for whether or not people have these higher rates of internal production of cholesterol or whether they're, they absorb a lot of cholesterol from their diet. And based on that, then you can kind of recommend to someone whether or not they need to worry about eggs in their diet or not. Right. Because if all their cholesterol is coming from internal production, it doesn't seem to really matter how many yeah. eggs they consume in their diet. Yeah. That's super interesting. But I just, I don't think we're at a point yet where there's some easy sort of formula where we can be like, oh, let's plug in your numbers and boop, boop, boop. Yeah. Like, here's your diet based Perfect on your diet. genes, right? right? It's just, and I think in the nutrition profession, we've never been trained on doing that because it was never available before. So I think there's just a lot of people in the medical field that don't know what to do with all that information. Right. Even like in our study, going back to it, like we've got this omega-3 test and that's cool. We'll be able to tell like what their omega-3 levels are. It's still very individualized as to whether that value is going to be because of their intake of omega-3 or maybe because of some genetic tendency towards how they, you know, store it or deal with it in the body metabolically. So we have all these cool tests available to us. It's just connecting the dots and being able to interpret that that I think we're not quite there yet. Still not just variables. in the nutrition field, but in like the medical field overall. Right. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned uh, the 23andMe thing. I actually took that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, uh, she's a uh, nutritionist. Okay. I think she's a PhD as well. Okay. Um, she has this thing where you can submit your 23andMe results and yep. like, get uh some data back on right. you know what you maybe should and there's should other companies eating. that do stuff like yeah. that too you can get you can actually download like your full report and then run it through these other companies yeah. and and specify like what what particular genes you're interested in looking at oh really yeah huh. this Seems must like... have been a little more surface level then okay so it gave me some information but one a lot of it was like right over mm-hmm. my head like mm-hmm. just didn't know right all the jargon and everything yeah. um just because i don't i'm not uh fluent in the field obviously right, right. i'm just the lay person um but you know there were some things like you know you're at more of a risk for this mm-hmm. or less of a risk mm-hmm. for this um i just think that's really interesting because bioavailability that was the word i was mm-hmm. trying to think of or biodiversity okay biodiversity i don't know um it does seem like we're to your point like approaching this new era where we're going to have a lot more 
data and a lot more research right. on right. Uh, the individual mm-hmm. diet and what's what's best for the individual. Yes, hmm. I and I think it's hard because we want to get that information and do something tangible with it. Yeah, but it's hard to even once we understand. Okay, here are all the genes that we're testing for, and here's your you know methylation pattern or whether you're heterozygous or homozygous for it. But then okay, how do we take that and go to, well, that means you should be eating fruit at lunch and dairy <laughs> at breakfast. Like it, it's really unclear. And from a research standpoint, it's going to be even more difficult to develop studies to kind of prove that any of these things work because it's so individualized. Right. So we can't come up with like a universal diet pattern yeah. that's going to work for all these different people, which is historically what we test in research is sort of, like, okay, is the low-carb approach going to work here? Is the high-fat approach going to work here? Um, so that becomes a challenge, too, because in in most health professions, we're very evidence-driven, and so we're not going to change how we recommend things until there's a pretty stable base of evidence to justify what we're saying. And when it comes to this issue of, like, personalized nutrition – there's never going to be that stable evidence base because yeah. it's personalized to every individual. Yeah, it's definitely which is tricky. Yeah, difficult to do those tests. There's ways around it. it. I mean, you can definitely have just sort of like percent of success towards goals right. that are maybe more individualized, and then you can kind of accumulate that for a group of people. But it's you know, it's just messy. Yeah, like thinking I about bet. it sort of statistically and just logistically, it's a little bit messier than just saying like this group was on this diet for 12 weeks and this group did the right. placebo for 12 weeks and look, there was big differences. Right. But then, you know, they all had different genome profile, genome profiles. Um Yeah. I'm, right. No. I yeah. Know <laughs> yeah. Genetic profiles exactly. I meant to say. But yeah, it's crazy. Um one thing though that seems to be a consistent factor is uh, across my girlfriend Mm -hmm. really wishes she was home to meet you. (laughs) She's at work right now. (laughs) Um, But she's very interested in uh, the blue zones. Yes. And one thing that seems to be uh, pretty consistent across a lot of healthy populations Mm -hmm. is fasting, correct? In some form or another. Yeah. I would say, Fasting. That was not a very confident, or, yeah. Well, <laughs> I think it's not... I, I hate to make people think that, like, fasting... Because I think in our culture, yeah. we take it to, like, the nth degree. Yeah. And so I don't want to say are, fasting. Yeah. <laughs> it's more... I think there's absolutely something to this idea of, like, eating more around our circadian rhythm and, like, maximizing that. Right. And... I think it kind of does align with fasting, but maybe not in the way that it's been like taken to the extreme in the U.S. Right. So commercialized. Yeah, yeah. I think this idea of having, you know, like an, again, like thinking about the blue zones in other countries, they just have a different pattern of eating. Yeah. And so I think that builds in this fasting, but they're not intentionally doing that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just their lifestyle. Yeah. Like, uh, what is it? The Okinawans in Japan mm-hmm. that, uh, I don't remember the details, but just based on their lifestyle and that they don't have all this technology, they don't have McDonald's, they don't right. have Panera, they don't right. have all this stuff. So, you know, they have to walk really far to get mm-hmm. water or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, just that's their daily life and right. it's consistent. Yeah. And that becomes their rhythm. Yeah. Like, and they're eating more mindfully. So I think that also 
builds in some spacing to when they're eating because they're not eating out of boredom just because food is available (laughs) because they're probably not bored because they also have social support and stimulation, which is another part of those blue zones that we've consistently seen. And they just don't have random access to processed food like we do in a lot of other places. So it's like a whole combination of things. But I think the research, there's some really interesting research that's been coming out about it's sort of like combining the intermittent fasting and the circadian rhythm thing. But my, I wouldn't say that I'm practicing this myself, but I think what I see is almost like an ideal pattern is to have a bigger breakfast in the morning, maybe not first thing in the morning, but at some point in the morning, having breakfast be one of your bigger meals of the day and have that be where you have like a higher carb meal. Okay. And then you decrease the amount of carbs in your meal the rest of the day and almost make dinner like your smaller meal of the day. Mm. So that pattern aligns more with how our body's hormones are naturally like the levels of our hormones, especially something like insulin. It kind of maps to maximizing our ability to handle that influx of food. Mm. What we tend to do, have this large meal at the end of the day, our body is metabolically like not as capable to handle that based on just our natural levels of hormones as they go through the day. So I think that is a shift, obviously, from how we've been eating. Yeah. Might be a little bit different than how other cultures eat because they have maybe these later night meals that are not quite as big because they're later at night. Um, But I think there's some research to support doing that. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not going to be some like magical weight loss cure. But I think just from a metabolic standpoint, we think about like how we can help resolve this whole diabetes epidemic. That might be a strategy because it's not telling people to cut out carbs. It's just timing it appropriately through the day. Yeah. So having this bigger carb heavy breakfast and then having something that's still a meal at nighttime, but not as carb focused. Right. Hmm. that's interesting and then lunch is sort of you know that happy medium in the middle (laughs) yeah Yeah. i've seen you know this is one of those things that i'm not generally like a dr oz fan but i did see (laughs) him on like one of the morning shows maybe two months ago yeah and he was promoting this idea and of course he went to the ninth extreme and was talking about how they people should be eating like cold pasta for breakfast because that has all this resistant starch and that's really great and i was like that doesn't need to be the case. Yeah. Like just have more of your like healthy carbs and more like have a bowl of oatmeal and some eggs and some fruit. Like you don't need to go crazy and have like cold spaghetti for breakfast. Right. But you know, of course that's like where he went <laughs> with this whole idea, but he was kind of mapping out the same kind of idea that like a bigger breakfast and then a smaller, not necessarily a smaller dinner, but just a less carb focused dinner. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I mean, going back to what you were saying about like your circadian rhythm, mm-hmm. uh, when you load your body up with food at night, like your body's shutting down to go to sleep. Like, isn't your digestive system a lot less active while you're like you're sleeping? Not necessarily. I know I hmm. have often come across people that are like worried about, you know, like Oprah Winfrey used to say, like, stop eating after 7 p.m. It's yeah. like, well, you don't Again, have to worry extreme, about, right? right like, <laughs> if you're going to eat, because a lot of times in this, era like people work and then they go to the gym and so if you're working out until 6 30 or 7 30 at night yeah you're gonna want to come home and eat dinner you shouldn't oh, yeah. say oh it's too late to eat and go to bed after a workout so i don't have a problem with people eating at night i think historically 
we just, again, have to be sort of transparent with ourselves. Like, what is it that we're eating at night? Right. If you're going to sit down and eat like a well-balanced meal, there's really no problem there. But if you're going to sit down and eat ice cream, then, yeah, that's problematic. Um, but in terms of like our body shutting down, you know, we're still digesting food overnight. Okay. And that's why we actually see our blood glucose levels will change from bedtime to the next morning. Mm. Part of that is because we're still metabolically active we're just not as active because we're not physically moving right um so i don't want people to like stress about that piece of it it's just more you know again consistently what is it that you're eating at night if you're eating snack foods and desserty foods at night then yeah that's going to be a problem because it's probably just excess calories that you don't need that's not supporting anything but if it's a post-workout meal you need to eat that yeah and that's not going to be a problem For sure. And for some people that work out first thing in the morning, I often tell them, like, you should probably have a little something before you go to bed just to kind of pre-fuel that morning workout, especially Mm. if you're not going to eat before you get up or before you start exercising. Interesting. So, I, yeah, I think having said what I said about the circadian rhythm, I think it doesn't mean that you need to, like, stop eating and fast overnight because that can, for some of us, be too much of an extreme, like, swing in terms of blood glucose levels and other things seems like just the common theme here is no extremes like just kind of take it easy because yeah. I, I saw you tweeted a cnn article mm-hmm. about uh most healthy diets for yeah. 2020 or whatever yeah your comment was i'm gonna get it wrong but something about like the most like just a regular eating right. pattern is- and that's what i mean that ranking that they put out almost like verbatim from like the last couple of years where like the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, they're the most reasonable and the most successful because they represent an eating pattern that you can actually maintain and stick with. And I will tell you, like I've been in situations where I've got my foot in my mouth because people have sworn that they can commit to keto and that keto's worked for them and Mm -hmm. it's like saving their life. And that's great. But for most people... I don't see that as the long-term solution. And when you do lose weight on keto, it's often initially water weight that you're going to gain back. It's not true fat loss. Like for most people, if you're experiencing weight loss that's more than like 5 to 10 pounds in a week, that's not all fat loss. Even when you're losing less than that, that's still like when we lose weight, we're not always just losing fat. It's maybe like 75% of the weight loss is fat, but not all of it yeah hmm. that makes a lot of sense because you know it, especially like on keto not having carbs you have less glycogen in your muscles mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. And, and glycogen pulls water into the muscles so right. when you deplete the glycogen you're you're losing that need for the water to be in the muscles with right it. Hmm. was that cnn article about losing weight or about just like health i think it was kind of meant to cover all of those bases. Okay. Because I don't even know what the DASH diet is. So the DASH diet, it stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. So it was first created to help people lower their blood pressure. And it is proven to work. And so, but it, it's just a nice, normal eating pattern that I think is beneficial to a lot of people, whether you have high blood pressure or not. Mm. I mean, it focuses on getting more fruits and vegetables, like high fiber things getting calcium because actually calcium can help lower blood pressure, hmm. um, cutting back on, you know, higher sodium foods. Although again, the sodium thing is sort of like the cholesterol thing that, um, for some of us genetically, 
the amount of sodium we eat is going to cause our blood pressure to skyrocket. And for other people, the amount of sodium we eat has no effect. Some people are just what we call salt sensitive, and that's pretty genetic. Yeah. So hmm. it's very similar in terms of like that piece of what a typical recommendation is doesn't always work for people. There's so much variability with all this stuff. Yeah, and I think that can be frustrating, but it also yeah. means that there's there's no one straight answer, but that gives you some flexibility to, okay, let's try this, see if that works. If not, we have other options to try. It's not like that's the only thing that's going to help someone. Yeah. You can go vegan for six months and then start eating organ meats. Yeah, and I know in the sport <laughs> nutrition world, there was a documentary that came out recently called Game Changers, yes. and that has caused quite a stir because – it is kind of projecting this idea that the vegan diet is going to be the like cure for everything and that you're still going to be able to perform at a high level. But they profiled like a select group of athletes. And I think right. the message should be that doesn't always work for everybody. Yeah. They didn't so include if you're Cam an Newton aspiring <laughs> MMA fighter, that's not your ticket to glory to go vegan. Right. Just because it worked for that one guy in the, in the documentary. Yeah. Like there's, I mean, as many examples, because I've, I've read a little bit about the controversy, like mm -hmm. the guy who's the strong man, like right. he's obviously juicing up like big time Probably. and <laughs> taking a ton of like vegan protein power or whatever. Like yeah. that's not the average vegan. Let's be real. Right. Um, right. That exactly. And then, you know, you have a lot of other uh, examples where it doesn't work out. Like mm -hmm. uh, I Cam Newton of mm -hmm. the Carolina Panthers went vegan, I don't know if it was a year ago or whatever. And I don't know the latest on it, but last I read, there was a lot of uh, speculation that his new diet has been a factor in him getting injured this season, just not performing well. And like, right. You get one side of the right. story. Well, and tough. I will say, you know, it's easy to blame something like that on yeah. stuff, but it it's ironic when those things coincide with each other. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's hard not to make those connections. Very. Yeah. yeah. It's, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, and it, but it happens. I think we've seen that with a lot of pro athletes where, you know, I think even Mello went vegan at one point and like oh, really? lost a ton of weight, huh. but to what purpose? And so I feel like that about, you know, being vegan, going keto from the sports dietitian point of view, I'm always saying, well, is there a performance benefit or is there a performance like deficit? Because right. those are the deciding factors for me about whether this diet is worth it for someone. Who cares if you're like dropping body fat percentage, if it's hurting your 40 time or if it's making you more susceptible to injury, right? Yeah, like if your performance point? is, is going to improve or if it's suffering, like those are factors more so than how you look. Yeah. Oh, completely. And Especially I, in, in a pro athlete. Yeah, like. but I think sometimes people get really hung up on those physical things and they, again, like convince themselves that that's like that's going to be beneficial. Yeah. Even if it doesn't show up as a benefit when you look at their actual like performance measures. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, what I mentioned earlier, the whole like tribalism thing, too, about mm -hmm. about diet. Like, mm -hmm. I, I feel like that plays a factor as well. Oh, yeah. Because. Well, and there's just this element of like trendiness too. Yeah. And I yeah. think I've seen and I've talked to some people that are professional sports dietitians and they, you know, all it takes is like, well, Beyonce and Jay-Z are vegan. So then all these <laughs> pro football players that are like affiliated with some of their brands, like they want to be vegan. Right. And then that trickles down to like, well, the college guys want to be vegan or like the high school kids want to be vegan because they see it 
like in those other levels in their Instagram feed and and what they yeah. don't realize is that a if these celebrities or pro athletes want to go vegan they have private chefs they can hire that will cook them fairly healthy meals mm-hmm. b they can do that in the off season and it's not going to be a big deal but they probably won't be able to stick to that in the during the season and see like those guys have such high energy needs it seems really unlikely that they're going to be able to really meet all their needs from a completely plant-based diet because the whole like the whole benefit of a plant-based diet for most people is that you fill up on so much you know fiber that you're not eating that many calories but that's yeah. a problem when you have this high performing athlete who needs to eat like 5 to 8000 calories a day it's just yeah. honestly not possible to eat that much Something's if you're give. just <laughs> eating and that's what you said like with the strongman like there's no way you can do that without resorting to supplements and then what kind yeah. of diet is that like yeah. is that really a completely vegan diet at that point yeah and well and i mean at that point it's just like you're getting a lot of process right like, i mean whatever. there's ways to be plant-based without feeling like you have to commit yeah but i think people get into these camps and they can't get out of them absolutely yeah it's it's wild and I mean, it's not just diet. It's obviously a lot of things. It's just the way we are. We're, mm-hmm. uh, we like to identify with yeah. groups. And I, know. I, you know, I certainly don't have issues with people choosing to be vegetarian or vegan. But no. I, again, think from like a performance, from a metabolic view, you know, when you think about protein, we think about calcium. There are plant sources of those, but in our body, the bioavailability of those is better from animal products yeah like I, you're never gonna find a plant source of calcium that's as bioavailable as the calcium you find in milk i mean there yeah. are some that are that are similar in bioavailability but you have to eat so much of it to get the same amount from like a glass of milk yeah it's just and the same thing with protein like the the bioavailability and the usage of protein from egg from whey is just better than anything we can really find even from soy right and i say that as a consumer of all of those plant things too yeah but that's just the reality when we think about like maximizing our intake to maximize someone's exercise performance you have to have some of all of them right and is b12 is another big one too right yeah yeah and yeah and that's the thing, like B12, you can't really get unless you're taking a supplement as a vegan. Yeah. And then I think, oh, like what, you know, yeah. eating plant-based but taking a supplement, like does that go against whatever your belief system is about being a vegan in the first place? Right. It's super And I think about that too with omega-3s. Um, there are definitely plant sources of omega-3s. Flax, right? Right. But it's a different form. So omega-3 can be EPA or DHA, which is traditionally found in like the fish and the fish oil. And then when you think about plant forms of omega-3, it's ALA, which is where like flaxseed and walnuts come okay. in. And my understanding is that in our body, we are just not as good at using the ALA. Like we can convert the ALA into EPA and DHA, but our body just prefers that sort of like inbound EPA and DHA. Right. Because they do have, you know, fish-free omega-3s, like plant sources of omega-3s really? that are out there. Huh. They're mostly from seaweed and stuff, so they're okay. still like sea-based. I just, I'm not buying it that it's the <laughs> same level of benefit to us Probably as not. those EPA and DHA I sources. I mean, just 
I don't know, as again, somebody who's not an expert in this field whatsoever, like looking at the history of human beings and how we evolved, like just looking at the food, the food chain, mm-hmm. it's like, we're not gorillas that spend all day in trees eating, right. eating plants and stuff. Like it's, we evolved this way for a reason, right. it seems yeah. like, I don't know. And I, I try to look at things objectively. It's, but uh, with so much information out there, it's tough. And mm-hmm. like, especially when you have all these, uh, like the Game Changers documentary. Right. I listened to a podcast where the the guy who did the documentary was debating with some other guy about, uh, you know, facts on the study and mm-hmm. stuff. And they're talking about dairy specifically with this one example. And the guy who did the documentary was citing this study that found of people who had dairy uh 13% had a decreased risk of heart disease or inflammation or something i don't remember what it was 16% of people had a decreased risk mm-hmm. and then the remaining like had none mm-hmm. but because the 16 was bigger than the 13 he was saying that well it causes more inflammation than right. it prevents right. and it's like well what about like it had no effect yeah like that's that's just not true well and that you know what i mean yeah i think that happens a lot in some of those publicly focused documentaries they cherry pick the data and they inflate the results because they know that most people are not going to track down the original study and most people don't even really understand the statistics to begin with so Mm -hmm. they can get away with manipulating it yeah i know that so the um the main, I don't know, MMA group, like they have sports dietitians that work out there in Las Vegas at UFC at their hmm. headquarters. And so they've been, I think, overwhelmed with like media requests and questions about the Game Changers documentary. And so they've had to do a lot of, you know, it's not something that they endorsed it or put out, but they've had to like put out a lot of fires about this whole conversation yeah. because they're like, listen, like we're not promoting this and molt like all of the athletes we work with are not necessarily on a vegan diet. So don't let that one sort of flashy movie, like make you think that this is the norm in the field because it's not. Yeah. (laughs) So you have the, the, all the tribalism with all the documentaries and everything. And then you also have the outrage that follows. (laughs) Right. Well, the same thing happened. There was a pretty good documentary a couple years ago now called fed up and it was Katie Couric and a couple other like pretty high profile people Mm -hmm. that put it together. And it was very slanted being anti sugar. Mm. And so they, I mean, it was a great documentary. I've often shown it in classes I've taught, but it's the same thing. Like they, chose what data to show and what people you know what professionals to interview and so they got the slant they were looking for Mm -hmm. but that didn't necessarily portray the entire picture right so yeah i mean they're i think they're good places for discussion but what happens is that i think people that already kind of want to believe that just drives them further down the path and then they're like totally resistant to hearing any sort of reasonable discussion around it yeah and then at that point you're not objectively looking at right the facts like and that's just yeah not a good way to operate and it's hard you know in the nutrition field i feel like a lot of students that want to become dietitians or even dietitians themselves often do skew towards being some sort of plant-based whether they're Mm -hmm. completely vegetarian or vegan that's pretty common to find and it's hard because then, okay, you have to like 
break that professional wall, like if that's your personal attitude and belief, you still have to be open-minded if clients are not going to be that way. You can't yeah. force them into that because depending on their situation, it may not be appropriate. Right. Yeah. And so that's how, you know, working with athletes, it's like you have to meet them where they are. Right. Not just with athletes, with any client, you got to meet them where they are. But with athletes specifically, especially like college athletes, if they're not able to sit down and cook themselves this like glorious perfect dinner you've got to figure out a way to still feed them appropriately given their resources right yeah that's wild and And that's it's a hard struggle i definitely feel like i've talked to some students who wanted to become dietitians who kind of got frustrated with that idea it's like we're not going to be able to completely change someone's diet overnight a if they're not willing to but b if they don't have the resources or motivation to do that we can't impose what we want to do onto them can only help somebody who wants to help themselves right and you kind of have to you don't want to scare someone off right because if you're like you have to start going vegan from your like <laughs> carnivore diet they're gonna be like no i i yeah. might do that for a day but that's <laughs> see ya like no thank you but if you can ease them into it and that's where i like i don't know if you've heard of this there's this um campaign called meatless monday that's what my Which girlfriend what, yeah, works yeah, at. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I I think something like that is just very reasonable to get people to buy into because it's like just Monday dinner, Monday lunch, like one, one just day. do it. Yeah. And then if that feels okay, maybe try another day or another yeah. meal or, you know, it just builds into you don't have to commit to anything. You're just saying like I'm open to trying this one day a week or one meal a, a week. Yeah. No, that makes way more sense. It's it's a reasonable as opposed to going right. from and for the, carnivore you know, to vegan. Let's say it's a college student. You know, there's now meals in the dining halls that fall into that on Mondays. They have the like meatless Monday entree. Yeah. So if it's a college athlete who like wants to be vegan, like, well, just try that. See if you even like it. Because yeah. I think a lot of people want to go vegetarian or vegan and then they realize that they don't even they haven't even eaten a lot of plant foods right. so they don't even know outside of like a very small staple diet what else they could even eat right and that's problematic because then they probably aren't even meeting their nutritional needs if they're just always eating like a salad and calling that a meal because they're vegan now right. yeah <laughs> this a, is supposed to fill me too. up right right that's a problem too <laughs> not I that bet. salads can't be filling but yeah yeah yeah. It should be done correctly. Right. There, uh, the Meatless Monday thing is in a lot of college campuses now. Yeah. They had it at Oswego. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like it's out there quite a bit. Yeah. I think it's it's a good idea. And I think that's kind of what they've built the whole like Monday campaigns around, that whole right. Healthy Monday thing. Um, it's even, I, I feel like I've seen it also at different like workplaces. So I think people are embracing that idea because it is. People look at Mondays as a chance to just start over again. Yeah. and absolutely get a good start to the week by doing something a little different so yeah i i generally think that that's a good a good approach whether it's monday or not and whether it's meatless or not just that sort of like general like let's try it one time or like let's make a small change here that's that's going to be the way to for me working with a client to get the best buy-in rather than saying like starting tomorrow forget everything you've ever done before and we're starting fresh like that's not gonna work so no. it's like let's just take one thing and make a small change and build off of that absolutely yeah small steps right um speaking of clients you work with like mm-hmm. what are what kind of approach do you take like um what are some i guess standard things or standard advice you give clients honestly it's it's kind of evolved over time yeah. i think 
for a while, again, as like a when I first started out as a dietitian, I did want to like make their diet perfect. So I would kind of mentally in my mind think of like 85 changes that I wanted them to make. Right. And it was probably overwhelming, you know, to kind of go through all of those. Now I tend to listen more to what I hear them being willing or not willing to do. And I feed off of that. And usually it's only, you know, like if we have a session, they might walk out of there with like one or two strategies that they're going to start doing. And they're probably not all that different from what they had been doing. But it's just almost like I give them permission to do that. Yeah. So I try to be a little bit more. um, It's not necessarily a negotiation, but it's more like instead of me just imparting my wisdom on them, it's like meeting them where they are and hearing what they want to do or what they've thought about doing and just kind of finessing like how that could work with where where they are and what they could do or want to do. That makes sense. Well, I mean, especially with like we discussed all the different factors and like whether it be I know genetics is extreme, but like, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't might have some, uh, I don't know, just different restrictions or willing to do different things like you can't just it's not a one size fits all thing. What I will say is that I think. I've found, again, I'm working mostly with people that are highly active and pretty highly motivated. Mm -hmm. So they're already eating probably more healthy than they give themselves credit for. And so what I see more often is that people have goals around weight loss in addition to still supporting their exercise. And so as a result, they're actually under fueling. Mm. That's pretty consistent. Like I feel like I often will tell people that they actually need to eat more. Really? And that that could support their exercise and still allow them to lose weight, which I know like blows people's minds. But we've seen that when we look at like case studies of different types of athletes, that is possible. That if you have goals to build muscle and lose body fat, oftentimes you need to slightly increase what you're eating so that you can maximize your exercise. And that actually will lead to weight loss. That kind of plays into the whole... uh this is probably just a buzzword, but starvation mode kind of thing where Mm -hmm. you're eating so less that your body's clinging on to what it has and you're not losing it. Is that a real thing? Yeah, I mean, I think about sort of like a traditional, you know, average Joe kind of person who might eat like a very healthy lunch at work and then go exercise at the gym. Like that is a terrible pre-workout meal if you're going to eat this like dainty little salad or like a lean (laughs) cuisine entree. Like that's not fueling you to maximize your workout if you're going to go to the gym and that's the only thing you're eating prior to working out. Right. So I think, yeah, just giving people that permission to like eat to support your exercise and don't make the weight loss the main focus, make maximizing the workout the main focus and lo and behold, like weight loss will follow. Yeah. Very reasonable. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um, I'm just looking at what else I had written down here. Oh, uh, Eat Right New York. Mm -hmm. You work with public policy. Yes. What do you do with them? Yeah, so... I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, I know. We're getting close. (laughs) I probably should head out soon. I'll make this quick. Um, So the New York State Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is a professional association of dietitians and students that live in New York State. It's the state branch of the national organization. Same thing. So we have about 5,000 members across New York State. It's oh, a wow. completely like volunteer organization. Um, we, there's actually probably 8,000 dietitians and people across the state, but 5,000 or so have joined the professional group. 
Um, so I am the public policy coordinator, which means that I help to kind of oversee any like advocacy efforts that we're trying to facilitate. Mm. Um, for us, it's sort of twofold. One is sort of state advocacy and the other is federal advocacy. Okay. So at the state level, we've been working for a long time to try to get professional licensure in the state. So right now as a dietitian, we get credentialed by this national organization. So they verify that we've done the right education, we've had this approved internship, and we've taken and passed the national exam. That's what allows us to be credentialed as a dietitian. Okay. But then at the, at the state level, a lot of states have licensed dietitians. It's just like how you have like a licensed massage therapist right. or you could be like a licensed, I don't know. There's a lot of professions that are licensed. Our profession in New York State is not licensed yet. So that's like a state issue that we've been working on. Huh. Um, we're also working on implementing some like federal rules into the state where like um, Medicare has sort of kind of made these rules about what dietitians can do in hospital settings, but then they left it up to states to actually implement into state law. Okay. And so th those are like state issues that we're working on. Honestly, I don't get like as jazzed up about those things because they don't, they don't impact me on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. But I know they're important to my profession. So I work with people who are a little bit more well-versed in those topics to help get that accomplished. I get more excited about the federal stuff. So we kind of work with our national organization and we do like, you know, meetings with legislators about the Farm Bill, about child nutrition reauthorization, about mm -hmm. the Older Americans Act, about some of the pieces of legislation that have real impact, not just on our profession, but on like the overall public health. Yeah, that's that seems like it'd be a lot more impactful not that uh it's not important to be licensed right. i'm sure that adds right. more legitimacy but as right. far as like you know you talked about the diabetes epidemic mm -hmm. like implementing yeah. uh, legislation that could be helpful to that exactly is... so that's been really fun and then, so and for both things i've done a lot of like legislator visits in albany and dc and just trying to advocate for whatever the topic is that's is cool fun. yeah wow, you do a lot of stuff yeah <laughs> I, I wear many hats, which I'm often reminded of is maybe too many hats, but yeah, but it's enjoyable. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it seems like you love everything you do and mm -hmm. it's just, it's awesome. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome. It is fun. Well, let's get you out of here. Um, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs>